0: Yeah, good morning, everybody. If you could um, grab a Bible, open your Bibles, and we're going to just jump straight into this passage. We're going to be looking at uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and we're going to look uh, through to verse 32. So I'll read the text. And it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen." they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So that's the text that's um, before us this morning. And, and as, we, as we go through this this morning, um, I just want you to imagine with me five scenes. We're going to look at five different scenes. And, and I want you to, to take great comfort in knowing that Christianity is solidly grounded in truth. So we're going to see five scenes. And they're going to help us take comfort that our faith is grounded solidly in truth. And so, the opening scene I've called the Great Debate. And like in movies, opening scenes, they often give some context. And in our passage, the Apostle Paul is acting as the crown prosecutor for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's gathered all of humanity to one side, and on the other side is the God of heaven. So you could imagine in your minds with me that humanity, that great mass of people is on trial, and it's a great court scene. And throughout their history, mankind has often put God on trial and even questioned if there is a God. Mankind has arrogantly stood in judgment of God, but this court scene is different. And in verse 18, we see that God is now standing in judgment of mankind. Our text says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And it's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So heaven now looks down on mankind, and that's the way it should be. And all of mankind's courts, all the different governments and kingdoms of the world, they've made their various rulings. But now the case needs to be settled once and for all, and it's been brought before the highest court. Uh, there will be no higher authority, and there will be no questioning of this decision. The creator of the universe and the ultimate sovereign will have the final word and the judgment of this case and so the apostle paul also knows that mankind is not represented by one single view of god Uh, we can't represent all of man in the same way we think of god differently we have different ideas and so what he does is he separates them into two major categories and he breaks mankind down into these two groups and they're the jews and the greeks or as it might be more familiar, the Jews and the Gentiles. There are those that had the special revelation of God's law through Moses, and there were those that didn't. In verses 1 to 18, verse 32, which is the passage that we're looking at this morning, he, Paul brings charges against the Gentiles, against that first group of people that, that he split mankind into. These are the godless hedonists, the pagans, the idolaters, the agnostics and the atheists, and, and it's those that have even denied the very existence of their even being a God. And so in our scene, the Gentiles have just presented their case. So imagine this. They've just presented their case. They brought forth the best arguments that they could offer. They brought forth the wisdom of their wisest men. And to jump straight to the point of their argument, they have argued that they are innocent because they were ignorant. Um, they've argued that they cannot be held accountable to God because God never made himself known to them, that God was invisible. How could they possibly be, built, be held guilty before a God that, that they don't even know if he exists, let alone know if that, oh, what his law is Laura's and what that God would require of them? So that was their argument. They argue that, that they are innocent because they are ignorant. They have no knowledge of God. And that's the argument that many in our world today, they comfort themselves with that same thought. This is their great argument that they raise up against the knowledge of God. They sit comfortably in their city, fortified and defended by this great wall. They think it impregnable and indestructible. And they take comfort in numbers that most people have brought into this way of thinking. So they don't even feel the need to defend their position. They don't even think it necessary to engage with other ideas. They just dismiss them and bat them away. And standing behind this great argument, they mock and jeer at Christians and pat themselves on their back for the soundness of their reasoning and their, and their wonderful intellect. And with great confidence, after presenting their, this argument... They sat back down with a smile on their face, and you can imagine them high-fiving each other, having a bit of a laugh, and thinking the case, is, you know, the case is going well. All things are under control. So that's the scene that I want you to have, this first scene in the back of your mind as we come to our text today, because it's exactly in that, con- that context that the Apostle Paul, against that lofty argument that's pervaded throughout ch- our church history, human history, um, but the Apostle Paul, in responding to that, he quietly uh, but boldly rises from his seat. And you can imagine him maybe with a, a steely look in his eye. He stands, and he stands to make the case for God. And so in his own words, uh, just before this passage is Romans 1.16. And he, and he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation. And so the Apostle Paul is undaunted from what others think of him. And and you could imagine it's, it's as if little David, as it were, you know, confident in the name of the Lord, comes and stands before this Goliath of popular opinion. He comes to slay this giant. And so this is the ultimate drama. Um, imagine this scene. It's, it's tense. Um, there's a huge magnitude. Everything's hanging on what the words that are going to come out of the Apostle Paul's mouth. And this is a this is, the, this is a debate about the ultimate question. And that's why I've called this scene the great debate. Because the ultimate question of interest to man, mankind is the question, does God exist? Is there a God? And, you know, I, I remember I used to, when I... Oh, years ago I studied at architecture school and I had an older brother. And he studied with me there. He was at the design school as well. So we were, um, he was studying landscape architecture. And I remember... Um, one day these posters started appearing on the notice boards around the school, and they had little, um, like little Christian, almost like little comic things, and he'd put up these little posters, and it would have like, one of them was a picture of, I think you might have seen this one, it was a picture of a scientist, and he had a, a test tube, and the caption said something like, as soon as I um, create life in this test tube, I'll prove God doesn't exist. And, you know, the irony there is proving that, you know, you need a a maker to make something in a test tube anyway. And so there were these little provocative things and every week there'd be a new one would would pop up on the walls and they'd be spread all around the the campus. And it it turned into quite a stir. Like everyone was talking about it and I knew who was putting them up. So I was kind of like, man, what's going on? And so he'd put these things up and it was, and it, People were talking about it. It caused such a stir. It was such a subject of interest. But what it turned out into was eventually what, what happened was it turned into a, an organized and formal debate. There were people that were so angry about it, and, and there was a little Christian group that would meet at the design school, and they ended up arranging a debate. So I think they had a, um, somebody from um, the university. There was a religious department, and they mediated, or, or um, I don't know what you'd call that. They sort of stood to... To manage this debate and the and the two cases came. But you know, before that the debate night came, I remember thinking to myself, I was like, man, I don't know if people are really interested in God. I don't know if maybe five or six people are gonna turn up to this debate. And do you know what happened? It got moved to one of the major lecture theaters at the design school and there were people standing in the door. It was just packed. And we're like, whoa. And but it was just it was a neat thing. But do you know what I learned from that? Um, And these verses in the book of Romans, they take us to the middle of a great debate and it is of great interest to people. People might act like they're not interested in God, but when we start pressing or when the Word of God starts pressing at this point on the very foundations of their worldview, suddenly it it piques their interest and people are interested. There's so much at stake when we start looking at, at this subject and this debate about the existence of God. And so, We've seen something of the context in this first scene. And just as it starts to get interesting, just imagine the Apostle Paul, he's stood up to open his mouth and he's about to give his argument and and argue for the case for God. But that's the end of the first scene and the curtain comes down and it's time for an ad break. I think that's what happens, doesn't it? It's the perfect timing for an ad break. But that's our first scene. And so the second one, the second scene I want you to, to start to think through I've called a shocking twist. And so we move on to the second scene. And just as in a good movie, something unexpected happens. You know, something that the whole plot turns around. Um, And so Paul, what he does is he refuses to accept as true the very point that is the foundation of all their claims. He pulls the rug right out from under their feet and masterfully turns the whole debate on its head. And so let me read read his argument. So if you look at verse 18 to 21, this is how the apostle Paul argues Uh, these particular things. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, notice this, they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, and it gives specific detail, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. Not just perceived, they're clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. And so their whole argument is based on the fact that they are innocent because they're ignorant of God, and that they can see no evidence of existence of His existence. And Paul attacks them at that vital spot, and he remo- he removes their argument of ignorance, and he charges them with intellectual dishonesty and you know what it's like when you're arguing with someone like that they're they're not giving everything they know intentionally they're lying and so it's an intellectually dishonest argument so they're not ignorant at all he argues the very opposite was true he argues that what can be known about God was plain to them because God has shown it to them he argued that God's invisible attributes have been clearly perceived but instead of accepting it Our text says that they suppress that truth, which implies that the knowledge of God is evident to them, but they don't want to see it. They don't want to accept it, and they just push it aside. Paul argues that they have the clear and undeniable evidence to show the existence of God, but they argue like disobedient little children, and they just play dumb. They put their hands over their own eyes and they say, I can't see. I can't, I can't see anything. And so it's not an intelligent way to argue, and it's not an honest way to make a case. And so I want you to see something else with the way Paul makes his argument. He doesn't merely charge them with intellectual dishonesty. He goes the next step, and he demonstrates it, and he proves it. He shows it to them. And so you can see this in verse 20. It says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And we say, how? But how has he proved it? And he says, in the things that have been made. And the key word is made. And so they are without excuse. And so Paul, he points to the creation of the world, the things that have been made. And, and I want to I read to you the words of a man by the name of Stephen Charnock. And he he makes the same argument, but he does it with better words. And he says, If it were as some fancy made by some assembly of atoms, there must be some infinite intelligent cause that made them, some cause that separated them, some cause that mingled them together for the piling up so comely a structure as the world. It is the most absurd thing to think that they should meet together by hazard and rank themselves in that order we see without a higher and wise agent. From hence it follows that there is a first cause of things, which we call God. There must be something supreme in the order of nature, something which is greater than all, which has nothing beyond it or above it. We see not a river, but conclude a fountain, a watch, but we conclude an artificer. Well then, might the psalmist term an atheist a fool that, listen to this, that disowns a God against his own reason. Without owning a God as the first cause of the world, no man can give any tolerable or satisfactory account of the world to his own reason, and that includes evolution. Nothing can make itself or bring itself into being. And I love that little punchy statement he has. Um, As the production of the world, so the harmony of all the parts of it declare the being and wisdom of God. As the cause is known by the effects... So the wisdom of the cause is known by the elegancy of the work, the proportion of the parts to one another. Who can imagine that the world could be rashly made and without consultation, which in every part of it is so artificially framed? No work of art springs up of its own accord. The world is framed by an excellent art and therefore made by some skillful artist As we hear not a melodious instrument, but conclude that there is a musician that touches it, as well as some skillful hand that framed and disposed it for those lessons, and no man that hears the pleasant sound of a lute, nor see the other when he hears the harmony, and listen to this, so a rational creature, that's a right-thinking creature, confines not his thoughts to his sense when he sees the sun in its glory and the moon walking in its brightness, but rises up in contemplation and admiration of that infinite spirit that composed and filled them with such sweetness. And so what he's saying is their thinking goes beyond the things that are made. Why would we confine our thinking to the objects that are before us without thinking behind them to the wise and amazing being that brought them into existence? Why stop short of seeing the glory of the being that made these glorious things? So that's his argument Um, and, And this simple but powerful argument, no matter what theories have been introduced throughout human history, this argument has never been overthrown. Nothing can make itself or bring itself into being. And God leaves this argument as a line drawn in the sand throughout human history, a line that can never be crossed without, this is the consequence, without rejecting reason and leaving common sense and logic behind. And because of this Verse 20 says they are without excuse. They cannot plead anything to excuse them. They know this is to be true. They are culpable for their willful blindness. And so listen to Psalm 19. This is verse 1 to 4. It says the heavens declare the glory of God. They don't whisper. They declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and the words to the end of the world. It's a comprehensive speaking. I think in Isaiah 45, God speaks about it's I that made the world and formed it. You know, and, um, and he says, God, he didn't speak in silence. He, he didn't speak in secret, sorry. He, he, did, he spoke clearly in creation. And I want you to notice verse 21. So if if you think back to the text in Romans 1, verse 21, for all know they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so the first half of that verse, it shows us the tree, um, the root of the tree of unrighteousness. It shows us the spring that fills a river of foolishness. And so, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. So, what they did was they reject the knowledge of God. They refused to honor Him as God. And just notice that this rejection is the starting point. Rejecting God is the starting point for all the disastrous consequences that follow. They reject the knowledge of God. And but... With this argument from Paul, it's as if just one effortless swing of the sword of the Spirit or the Word of God. And I think he is thinking back. He's basing his argument in things like Psalm 14 that we'll look at shortly. Um, he's arguing from the Word of God. This arrogant argument has been cut to pieces. Paul just marches on to the next argument in chapter 2, and, and he does the same thing with the moral person and the Jew. And I, and I wish I had more time to look at that argument because it's, a, it's just another wonderful thing. But he argues on the basis that their own conscience, that mankind has an internal witness to the law of God written on their hearts, another internal witness to the truth, that their conscience either accuses or excuses the behavior that they do, um, that there's this voice in their head that they know. Um, and, so, and so that too is it's another internal proof of guilt, and it's another witness to the knowledge of God that, that mankind, he honestly can't shake himself free from it. He has internal witness to there being a God, a creator, and, and a conscience. But it leaves, it leaves everyone, both Jew and Gentile, and Paul says this in chapter 3, verse 19, what these arguments do is they leave every mouth closed and all the world accountable to God. So he, he has shown and demonstrated that everyone in the world uh, whether Jew, Gentile, religious, moral, um, or pagan, whatever whatever your stripes, everyone is guilty before God and has a knowledge of God and a knowledge of their sin. But that brings us to the end of our second scene. So we, we saw a shocking twist. Mankind argued that they have no knowledge of God, and Paul turned the argument on its head and demonstrated that, in fact, they did have the knowledge of God, that in, in spite of the evidence, they knowingly and willfully reject God, and they pretended they can't know God. Um, so I want to move on to the, to the third scene. And I want you to imagine, uh, I've called this one the rejection of reason. And I've called it that because that's exactly what happens when people reject God. They reject reason. In verse 21, our text says, after saying that they reject God, it says, they became futile in their thinking, so, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, claiming to have these wonderful arguments, claiming to know all these wonderful things, they became fools. And I want you to turn in your Bibles now to Psalm 14, verse 1. As I said just before, it sounds, it's hard not to think of this passage as being in the back of Paul's mind, but um, Psalm 14, verse 1, and you know this so easy, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And I just want, I want you to know, in Hebrew, you know it says, there is no God. It doesn't have the words, there is. So the text would just read, the fool has said in his heart, no God. He, he, he's, he's arguing exactly what um, we've just seen in the text in Romans. The fool has not just said that there is no God, but he's saying no to the God that he knows is there. He's saying, no, I will not have this God rule over me. I will live however I want to live. He, he sees God and says no to him and pushes him away. Um, and it's important to know as well that the word fool, so looking at that Psalm 14 there, the fool has said in his heart, the word for fool, it doesn't emphasize intellect or thinking. It's included, but it's not the main focus. And so what it emphasizes is a moral dimension. And you can see this... And you can see this... Um, and you can see this um, and even in the following line, it says, "The fool has said in his heart there is no God." And then the next line, like a parallel, says, "They are corrupt; they have committed abominable deeds." And so that gives the full picture of what's going on. It's not just an intellectual um, reason that they've, uh, you know, thrown away the idea of God. It's it's tied into their morality, their their deeds. Um, and so the psalmist rightly calls the atheist a fool because against reason he's rejected God. But what I want to well, what I want you to see in that, that little passage there is, is why. why would, uh, what would make somebody reject reason? Why would somebody reject a God that's clearly spoken in creation? And it's because there is a desire to live out the lusts of the sinful nature. And so that's what I, I meant, the parallel line there says they are corrupt, they've committed abominable deeds. And we see the same thing. If you were to look in Isaiah 32, you don't have to turn there, I'll read this one. 32 verse 6, it says, For a fool speaks nonsense, and his heart inclines towards wickedness. And you have the same thing, that, that inclination towards wickedness, right against the fool speaking nonsense. And it says to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord. We also see this in our own text if we if in Romans one eighteen when it speaks of mankind suppressing the truth, you'll remember it it says by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth and again it's not just it's not just a, um an impartial um observation of the evidence there's a moral will that is biasing their thinking that's that's persuading them to do otherwise and so we see that their foolishness is linked to their lifestyle it's not just their thinking and and you could probably see as well in that passage in psalm 14 the fool rejects god in his heart the fool has said in his heart that there is no god it doesn't say the fool has said in his head there is no god and the reality is that their desire to live outside they desire to live outside what they know to be right and that's a greater desire than maintaining their intellectual integrity. Um, So that's what these verses are saying. It's a case of heart before head. Um, Their rejection is always moral, and it's not merely intellectual. And, you know, just to give you one illustration, I remember remember growing up, I'm sure you guys have done that as well, to some extent, some more than others. But, you know, growing up, I went to church, and there was another young guy that went to church with me, and um, as we got older, we grew up, and different different things. You know, you see people go different directions, and all of a sudden, this this one one young guy started posting these things on social media. Uh, he had been reading Richard Dawkins and all these arguments, you know, about why why it was foolish to believe in a god. Um, and he started, you know, giving all these reasons and these facts to say why he'd rejected the Christian faith and why he'd why he'd thrown out this. And it was this intellectual argument that he was making, but. You know you know how sometimes people are a little more transparent than, than they think they know um, you know at the same, around about the same time this this guy had started living with his girlfriend and had moved in and and you just you can 't help but think you know i don 't know if it was purely an intellectual exercise that he was going through. It seems pretty evident that there was some moral persuasion that that encouraged his rejection of God it wasn't just a a weighing of the facts and presenting an intellectual case. There's always a moral dimension that's taking place. And so it's good to be aware of that. Um, but that's our third scene where we've seen that mankind rejects reason. And it is his morality, or lack of it you could say, that is steering the ship. It's not his intellect at all. And so the claim is, you know, we've got all these facts and information, but there's a moral undercurrent that is really dictating where things are going. And from this point on, we begin to see a downward spiral of irrational thinking, illogical behavior, and in a word, you could just call it darkness, that when you throw away the knowledge of God, you just go down and down, and the consequences are just terrible. So when mankind rejects God, he rejects reason, the lights go out, and his foolish heart is darkened. And so I want to move you on to our fourth scene. And our fourth scene is the results of that rejection. They've made the decision, they've rejected God, um, they've rejected reason in the process, and now we see the results of that rejection. You know, and sometimes I think it's best we sometimes we can just read the Bible and we know what it what it means. And I just want to read to you the results of rejecting God and rejecting reason so I'm going to read our passage from uh, verses 24 to 32 and it says this and you'll see three times that there's a little phrase that God gave them up and three times God will give them up so therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their woman exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, I want you to remember that that Not acknowledging God is the cause of it all. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though, and this is the same truth we've looked at, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty approval or give approval to those who practice them. And these are the sad results of man rejecting the knowledge of God. And that is not far from a picture of the world and the darkness that surrounds us today, is it? I'm sure i 'm sure i 'm not the only one, but i 'm sure the thought has crossed your minds uh, when you think of the uh, horrific abortion legislation that recently was passed by our government, you know that that legislation allows for the possibility of abortions up to full term and and we just think to ourselves, we're like, how could they possibly think this is okay? How can they not see that this is murder? How can they be so blind to something that is so?" obvious you know how co- and we can wonder at the, lo- the logic how they've embraced homosexuality how can they not see how immoral and how unnatural this is or we could talk about the theory, theory of evolution that's even taught in our schools um, and we're even you know what we start to be lost for words when we start to wonder um, you know about how how people are starting to talk about gender these days and how it 's as if we can choose your own gender and we, and just you can see this this rejection of reason and just this darkening in the understanding that starts to take over and what we 've seen in our text that all those consequences begin with a rejection of God, and so we see these results in the world around us we 're not surprised and and even our, our, the day in which we live and the age in which we live is not different from any other day and age since the fall. That's always been the case, but, but sadly that is the case. But it, it also just shows how relevant this passage of Scripture is for us in our day and age. We can understand exactly what has happened um, when people reject God. God has given them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, God has given them up to dishonourable passions. God has given them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And just like the passage says, they not only practice these things, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. They're not content with with, um, someone thinking, you know, they're not content with someone not thinking as they do, but they pressure everybody else to accept what they do. They desperately want to normalize their sin, and they won't tolerate anything that stands in their way. So that's our fourth scene. These are the results of rejecting reason, which in turn was a result of rejecting God. And I want to take you to our, our last scene, which is, if you imagine all, all court cases, I guess, have a, have a verdict at the end. Um, but this is the, the fifth and final scene, and I want to, pick to, um, I want to draw some conclusions. And we, we actually need to be very careful what we draw from this passion uh, from this passage. Sorry. Firstly, what we've looked at today we, we call it general revelation. There's there's two categories. There's a special revelation and general revelation, and the revelation is obviously the revealing, the showing of knowledge. And so we've seen a general revelation of the knowledge of God. So it's seeing things like creation and conscience. We see the evidence for their being a God, um, and it, but it's not enough. General revelation is not enough to save a single person, and it's not enough to convince anybody to follow Christ. If someone was listening to me this morning that that would be described by those people that reject God, maybe, maybe they might change their mind and believe that there is a God that created the world. Maybe they would do that. Um, But that would only take them from, for example, from atheism to theism. They would go from thinking there's no God to their being a God, or maybe they'd go from atheism to being agnostic, to say there's a little bit more evidence, but I, I still, I'm still in the dark. Um, but the Apostle Paul in making these wonderful arguments in the opening chapters of Romans. He hasn't, he hasn't won anything yet. He's presented general revelation. But what he's done is he's pulled out the weeds, ready for the planting of the gospel. He's cleared away um, some arguments, some, um, some that obstruct people from coming to the knowledge of Christ. And in in Romans 3 verse 9, he states correctly, he says, we've already charged, after making these cases, we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That's his goal. He's shown that all of mankind is under sin. He's shown that they're all guilty, that they haven't honored God, that they know that there is a God, but they're still in darkness. They don't know who the true God is, which is the true religion. How do I make myself right with him? Can I even make myself right with him? They've, they've been convicted and are guilty on the basis of this general revelation. But the gospel really is the greatest need uh, for our broken world and for the broken people that live in it. And and what he has proved is he's proved universal guilt and therefore he's proved the universal need of the gospel. This is the greatest need. Um, so he's trying to get to something beyond general revelation. Um, so I'll give you one last thought I want you to be encouraged that while the world around us spirals into moral decay and darkness, that while the world around us has rejected reason, that Christianity is solidly grounded in truth and logic and facts and reason and reality. It's, it's not, we don't have a faith that is just just happily believing in unicorns. Our faith is, locked, is, is grounded in truth, the truth about how our world came into being, the truth about the creator that made it. It's grounded in truth. And I think we sometimes, when we don't know something, uh, we start to get a little bit anxious. And it is such a comfort to, to know that the worldview that we have, the way we think through things and understand the world is grounded in truth. Um, It's a neat thing, you know, sometimes we think of uh, Christianity and rightly in terms of there's wonderful blessings where we're forgiven from our sin. And so we're forgiven from sin and we take comfort in that. But we can also take comfort in the fact that we believe in the truth and our minds just rest knowing that we're not crazy. We believe in truth and how our world really came into existence. Um, But I mentioned at the beginning, I wanted to wanted you to to think of these five scenes and I wanted to do that so that they would help us take great comfort in knowing that Christianity is grounded in the truth. um, I'll read to you, you don't have to turn there again, but this is Colossians chapter 2 verse 2 and 3 and Paul writes that, he writes to these people that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and he says to reach the riches of full assurance. So, um, to, to, to full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. So he doesn't want to stop at general revelation. He, want, he there's, there's more to know. It's, there's more than knowing and believing that there is our God. And, and he says um, to come to full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That's what he wants to get to. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I love that verse because in Christ I had in all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, every answer to every question is, is um, in the person and being of Christ. And He says in verse four, "I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments." Um, But you know, it it really is a privilege. You know, I was thinking um, leading up to this week. You know, opening the Word of God is a real privilege. And and I thought for the first time this week, I thought, you know what. I don't know if I want to do it. <laughs> and perhaps you're wondering, what, are you, what on earth are you talking about? And you know, I was just enjoying Matt's sermon last week as he taught through the introduction to the Gospel of John. I wanted him to just get to the, the first verse and start teaching it. And I thought, man, I'm getting in my own way. But but those those verses that begin that gospel is just such an incredible thing because he skips, as it were, all these arguments and he goes straight to the person of Christ and and in Romans, this verse we've been looking at, 18 to 32, Paul is not trying to win an argument with the world. He has a much more ambitious goal in his mind. All he has done is build a platform on which he can present Christ. Really, he just has two swipes of the Word of God, and all those arguments have disappeared. You know, He hasn't even broken a sweat. He's just doing the warm-up. His, the, the real exercise is presenting the gospel. Um, and so he's proved that the whole world is guilty before God, but he wants to present that, that very God. He wants to present God to the people in the person of Christ. And so I think I am looking forward to next week. This is John 1 verse 1, and I want to read you this because it's as if the world in darkness and this dark scene that we've, we've pictured is suddenly the, the, the sun's rising And it says, in the beginning. And so you think back and you're like, wow, with the creation of the world and all those mysteries and questions and and this debate and everything that's going on, it says, in the beginning was the Word, the second person of the Trinity. and And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And we get answers to all of these questions. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in darkness. You know, and, and that what we've looked at in our passages, our world really is in darkness. Um, but Christians can rest knowing that in Christ, they're hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and that in Christ, our minds are securely anchored to truth. Um, you know, we know why the world was made. We know where the world's going. We know what's happening in the future. We, we are just so comforted um, by having this, this, this gospel made known to us. Um, and I think, I think what Paul's doing in this book is he wants to take people beyond theism, beyond moralism, and he wants people to actually come to know the, he wants them to actually come to know the God and the creator of the universe, and we come to know him in the person of Jesus Christ, that is God manifested in the flesh to us. Um, so I'll just pray and we'll finish up. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we do. We thank you for the light of your gospel. We ask you to give us courage and not to be ashamed. We just thank you for Christ. Amen.